There is one and only one God eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, okay? So one and one God fully expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Father then is fully God. And that's who we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the Father uh, during this session. And he is fully God. He's not one-third God. Um, but fully God. So right off we know this, that what distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit isn't uh, the essence or isn't the nature of who God is, but rather what distinguishes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are going to be the roles that each of them play and the relationship uh, that they have with one another. So uh, that's what we'll be looking at really this afternoon. I think it's going to be really helpful for us in terms of us being people who lead or us of being led, of understanding the importance of understanding our roles and our relationships uh, within regard to uh, where God has called us. So the main two questions of this session are, first, what characterizes the distinct role and relationship of the Father with the Son and the Spirit? And how ought these roles and relationships be reflected in our leadership? Um, so this will get down to that second doctrine that we looked at this morning, and that is the image of God. That we're created in the image of God to be a representative of God, and as a result of being a representative of God, that God expects us, uh, as we are leading, uh, that we are people who are uh, showing the Trinity in our relationships with others. And so that's one of the parts that we need to make sure we understand uh, in terms of this doctrine of the, of the Trinity. Now, when I use the word leadership, uh, most often uh, we think of those, those positions that actually have titles to them, and so we can you know, pretty quickly identify people who are leaders because they have titles. But before we go on, I want to uh, ask you, uh, what are places of leadership that don't have titles, but, are, but you're still in a place of leadership? In other words... Uh, I think it's important that as we're all sitting here, nobody's sitting here going, well, I'm not a leader, so uh, I'm not sure what to do with this. Um, I would say you probably are a leader. You just need to identify that, not, not because you had a title, but simply because God has put you in a place of leadership. So you tell me, what are some of those places of leadership that, are, uh, that you're thinking of or we should be thinking about? What's that? At home? Okay, so what are some of those places at home? Mother, mm -hmm. mothers, fathers, there we go. See a hand way in the back. Okay, Christ follower. So in one sense, there is good, needs to be at least self-government. We would call that uh, self-control, at least a part of that self-government. Uh, we need to lead ourselves, interesting enough. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, what else? What other places of leadership that you end up finding yourself in? Okay, in, within the context of the church, and so there's going to be various roles within the church that you may be called to lead out in that, in that church. So, of course, we got titles, you know, we do have pastor, and that would be, or elders, that would be, uh, that would be one, deacons, uh, deaconesses, if you will, um, that's another position, but it could be MC leaders, which in one sense we don't have in terms of our context, and missional communities don't have, uh, you know, that's not a biblical title, although we call them deacons, or we're, we're aiming for them to be deacons, um, Yes, we're else in uh, we're else in the church. What's that? 
discipleship. So it, it could be just a, a relationship that you have with someone and that you find yourself in a place where you're maybe a little bit further along in your journey in terms of your walking with Christ and your God has brought somebody into your life and you feel like, okay, God, you're calling me in one sense to lead this individual in their, in their uh, following Jesus Christ. What are other places that you find yourself? Yeah, I see that hand way back there. Children's ministry, yep, children's ministry, yep. All the way back and back, yes. Evangelism, so uh, who are we uh, called to in terms of bringing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is that? Okay, everyone, okay. So everyone, good, got it covered. Oh, that was easy. Now I just got to get everybody. Um, Yeah, so it can be friends, um, it can be family members, it can be strangers, um, and there are going to be times when we are in, in the context of just life, uh, we're all of a sudden put in the position of leading people we don't really know. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, that can, that can happen. Um, that can happen ad hoc. All of a sudden, you're, in a, you're, a, you're a team leader uh, in, a, in, a, in a work position, and so you're working with your coworkers as a leader. You've been asked to lead a particular team. This, this stuff will apply to that. Um, so we can think of within those contexts as well, context within, our, within employment, context within uh, just the world itself socially, uh, context within the church, context within our families, even within ourselves. So those are all the places that we want to be thinking about in terms of, uh, of leadership. So I'm praying that, that this will apply to, uh, will be applying to these things as you begin to th- understand how the Trinity works out uh, its roles and relationships um, with one another. So with that... I said I'm praying, I already have, but we need to do it again, so let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this uh, afternoon, thank you that we can be in your word this afternoon. Father, my prayer is, our prayer together is that this would be a time of worship, uh, that we would marvel at who you are and how you relate to yourself how we relate to the persons, how the persons relate to one another. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be in awe, that while tired and, um, uh, and, and come to the end, Father, we, we may feel fatigued. Uh, I pray, Father, that we would come feeling like we have grown and in our love of you. So we would pray that you would warm our hearts towards you as we learn about you. So please do that work that only you can do, we ask. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. So we are uh, session two, Behold the Father. And uh, we're going to start off right here with is the Father's un- unique role within the Trinity. And so here we go. The Father as supreme among the persons of Godhead. So we're going to be looking at the fact that within the Godhead, the Father is the supreme among the persons of the Godhead. Now, right off here, remember when I'm using the word supreme... Uh, I'm not saying that the Father is greater in essence or greater in his nature than the other persons. The Godhead is eternally, simultaneously, and fully equal in essence. So the Father is not supreme in essence, but in relationship to uh, the persons of the Godhead. And so we can see that. I want to look at the relationship between the Father and the Son back in Psalm uh, chapter 2. So the second Psalm. So turn in your Bibles there uh, to Psalm 2, please. Amazing Psalm, an introduction to all of the Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2. Um, Psalm 2. 
Okay, so what's the context of Psalm 2? Well, it's the story of man in rebellion against God uh, that began in the garden. And so you see on our outline here, humanity wants to be supreme. I want to be a law unto myself. I want independence from God. I want to uh, take a bite out of the fruits of defining good and evil. That's the story of the garden. That's that which we have inherited that's come down to us. That is uh, who we are. It's also the story of Babel. Um, the Tower of Babel is a collection of people scratching and clawing for supremacy. And they want to they come together and they want to be supreme and they want to show that supremacy. They want to be independent of God. They want to be a law unto themselves. Uh, they want to be lord of their own kingdoms. So Psalm 2 is a poetic description of humanity fighting for supremacy, not just over one another, but over God. So we begin at verse 1. So why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, or against Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, did you see that? His anointed. His anointed. So to anoint someone is to confer authority upon that individual. It is to identify that individual as someone in whom that person is putting in charge. So, who is supreme? Well, the Father is supreme. And he's the one who is doing the anointing here. Do you see that? says there, against Yahweh and against his anointed. So the his is God, or Yahweh, the covenantal name that God has given. This is the name that is, uh, the name, that, the, the importance of this name is this, is that he was, he is, and will be. That's where this name comes from. So this is the supreme one in whom was introduced to uh, Moses out there uh, in, in the wilderness before he was called to bring God's people out. Uh, he sees, of course, that burning bush. Uh, he goes to the burning bush. He's wondering what in the world's going on here. And uh, God reveals himself to him. It's that point where Moses says to, where Moses asks the question of this God, he says, who are you? Um, they have been in slavery for so long, they don't even know who this person is, this, this supreme God, and so he says, I am who I am, uh, or Yahweh, I, I am, I, I am, I am, <laughs> I was, I am, and I will be, this idea of I have no beginning or no end. In other words, I'm the supreme one. And yet this supreme one, back in our passage here in verse 2, where it's this supreme one, Yahweh, the Lord, he has anointed someone else. He's anointed someone else that, that we are trying to tear the, tear the bonds off of that person. So who is that person? Well, let's keep going here. Um, now, uh, by the way, before we go on, our, already we're getting a principle here to consider. When we start messing with God's order... Uh, we are messing with God himself, okay? So when we begin to mess with the way God does things in terms of, of placing order, we are messing with God himself. He has an order within himself, and so when we begin to mess with his order, we're beginning to mess with God himself. So how does God respond to this cry of independence? We'll look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, derision is a word that mocks 
It mocks the view that those who are being mocked, that they actually deserve it. For placing themselves, for having the gall to address the person who is so far above them. And so he, he speaks to them with derision. But God's response is even more sobering in verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what's God saying here? What's he saying here? You tell me. I decide who is king. I decide who is in authority. So who is this king? Verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree... Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what we do here is we see, we see the supremacy of the Father in relationship to his pre-incarnate Son. We see the supremacy of the Father in relationship to his pre-incarnate Son. Now, uh, verse 7, where in the New Testament have you heard those words before in verse 7? Okay, Hebrews. Uh, who said Hebrews? Where, where at? What's, what's the context of there in, in, in Hebrews? Do you remember? Okay, yeah. Speaking of the supremacy of the Son, this verse is, is, is re- referenced, this psalm is referenced there to be speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. Excellent, good job. Where else? Whoa, Revelation 2, I didn't know that one. Which, who said that? Nicely done, and give us, give us the context. I'm not familiar with that one. Okay. 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 So again, speaking of the sun, nicely done. Way to way to use those uh, way to use those references. Way back in the back, further back than anybody else. Yes. Yes. So at the, so if you want to put in a little, fill in a little thing here, at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Very good, Christian. Yes, Matthew 3, 16 through 17. It, it, there it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. And that's a reference to Psalm 2, with whom I am well pleased. Or if you wanted to put in another verse, you could put in John 1.14. So you got that little space there. John 1.14, which says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten. That would be of the one and only unique one. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or you could put in 
John 3.16, the very beginning there. Everybody knows John 3.16 probably. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, which is a reference back to here in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So in light of God's wrath, how are those who are striving and straining to be a law unto themselves, who want to define good and evil on terms, who want to have independence from God, how are they to respond? So he tells us now how they should respond to this one who God has anointed, who God has called out for his own, and whom we now know from the New Testament, this is the person of Jesus Christ. How are they to respond to him, verses 10, through, uh, verses 10 through 12? So here it goes. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Okay, so you want wisdom? Kings, you want wisdom? Be warned. So you want wisdom or do you want warning? Whatever the case may be, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in, in him, in the Son. Okay, so what are they to do? What's, what's that mean? Kiss the Son. Okay, so show respect or reverence. And what is the, maybe the visual image you might have in your head? Well, kissing the sun, I guess, but I think there's another one we might have. Who, who's the king? According to our passage, who's the king in, in, in Revelation, I mean in Psalm 2? Huh? What? I heard. The sun, who is the king. Okay, so the sun is the king. Um, visual, what's that? Okay, bowing before the king, and what do they many times do? Here, kiss my, kiss my ring, right? They put their hand out there. Well, actually, it's the right hand, not the left hand. Uh, kiss my ring, and they'll kiss the ring of the king. And so that's the visual image I have. I'm not sure if that's the right visual image, but that's the visual image I have in terms of, um, uh, you know, some of these, the crown. I think you saw that on Netflix. They were doing that kind of a thing. So anyway, that's the visual image I have. Um, so they're saying, kiss the sun, Bow down to him in homage. Uh, show, your, show him as the one in whom God has called to be, to be king itself, um, himself. So, yeah. It's a, it's a, and notice here, if we do that, there's going to be a, a, an outcome at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so it is to embrace him as sovereign. And notice that outcome. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, did... Did the son claim this position of authority for himself? No. No, the father anointed him. The father, look back at verse 7. Verse 7, I will decree. The father decreed that the son will be the king. Now think of that. Think of it, right? Even though the Son is equally, eternally, simultaneously, in essence, the same as the Father, he doesn't claim this position for himself. Let that settle for a minute. The Father is supreme, 
among the persons of the Godhead, equal in persons, and yet the Father is supreme, and the Son doesn't claim something that is absolutely true of him, but rather he, he knows his role. And what a wonderful role he's got, you know. Um, we'll see that in a minute. So, so we see this in the pre, pre-incarnate um, Son. Any thoughts, any questions of that? It's not the way we function t- uh, in our own intuition that if I have, if I have, if I'm equal with that other person next to me, then I have rights and I have, re- you know, things that I can claim for myself. And that's true of the, of the Godhead, and yet he doesn't do that. He understands his role uh, within, within this uh, trinity. Pretty amazing. Okay, so now, so we see that in the pre-incarnate son. Now let's look at this in the incarnate son. So turning your Bibles now to a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. And if you didn't know what Matthew 6, 9 and 10 is, you probably know it without even having to turn it. The Lord's Prayer, of which we are most familiar Verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. So the disciples have asked Jesus, how should we pray? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So who does this? Easy question. Who does the son say we ought to pray to? Thank you. The father. Whose kingdom does the son recognize we ought, the, the ought to come? The Father's, good. Whose will is the Son telling us to pray for? The Father. Not his, but the Father's. The Father's. Jesus doesn't say, pray to me, or pray for my kingdom, or pray for my will to be done. He is rather expressing a bowing to the supremacy of the Father, his kingdom, the supremacy of the Father's will. Now, you might say, well, okay, but Jesus is talking to disciples. Disciples are clearly not on the same uh, par with the Father. Uh, You know, we're, we're not equal. Of course, he's saying, you know, when you pray, pray to the Father. You know, I'm here, but you pray to him. And, uh, but, but really, the Son doesn't mean, doesn't mean the Father supreme, Right? So where would we go in Scripture to say, to counter that, where we find that the Son is actually praying the Father's will? The garden. Garden, which one? Okay, get sent me. So we've gone from the Garden uh, of Eden, and, uh, and, and now we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what should have happened in the Garden of Eden is going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that's why we have Matthew 26 there. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's just, that's just tremendous what we're, what we're finding in that, that prayer. What, what are we finding there? I mean, beyond just what we, just, we understand here in terms of him submitting to the Father's will, what, what do we see going on here with Jesus? Okay, a sacrifice. Tell me more about that sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice is this? I'm going to get up earlier, one hour earlier in the day kind of sacrifice. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, just think about that. So what has, the, what, what has he done? His whole life has been following the Father's will. He has perfectly obeyed the Father's will. And I tell you what, when you obey, oh, perfectly obey the Father's will, it doesn't come out like uh, a bed of roses. Actually, it comes out like this. Um, so that when he is absolutely, perfectly following the Father's uh, will, it actually ends up being a place where he is very sorrowful to death. I mean, that's hard to comprehend what he's, what he's talking about here. And so what he, he does is he prays, and he prays that, um, yeah, that uh, the Father's will, not my will, but your will, Father, is most important here, not mine. Now, again, just... Ugh. This is God, the Son, saying, your will is more important than my will. You know, he understood his, his role. He understood his role and what God was doing. He understood his relationship. He understood that the Father was supreme to him in this relationship, not in essence, not in nature, but in terms of this relationship, there was a difference there. Um, we see it another time, we could go to the well where Jesus met the Samaritan woman. She leaves uh, in joy in meeting the Messiah. And the disciples return and are urging him to eat. You know, they come back and, and he says, well, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know. And they're all kind of scratching their heads going, well, where did he get his Lunchables? You know, um, <laughs> so to clarify, to, to, make, to help them understand, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He recognized that what was going to bring strength to his life, ultimately what was going to give him life, was not food, ultimately, but it was to do the will of the Father. It's not surprising when we come to the temptation and then the Spirit leads him into the, into the wilderness, and of course he's being tempted to make these loaves. He says, it's better, to, you know, to, it's better than just eating bread, What's better for us is to actually obey the word of God. He understands what is really going to bring ultimate life to him, and that is to walk in the will, to obey the will of the Father. And um, so we see him submitting to the Father in this way. We see him uh, recognizing his role and a relationship that he has there. So the Father is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. We've seen it in the pre-incarnation, incarnation, now incarnation, and now what, let's look at one more, the ascending of Jesus. So this is now, he's ascended into heaven. He's going to have a, uh, he will always have this physical body, uh, but uh, now he's ascended into heaven. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. What's he going to do there? Is he finally going to stake claims? 1 Corinthians 15, let's see here, beginning at verse 20.
But, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a, as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, he, God the Father, is accepted who put all things into subjection under him, another pronoun, Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. You see why I wanted you to read that, read it in your own Bible? There's a lot of pronouns going on there, right? Okay, but here's what's going on. So, so um, um, in terms of, in terms of, what being described here, what is, what's, what's he describing overall? Well, it seems there in verse 24, it's this. Then comes the end. He's trying to describe the end. Verse 24, you see that there? It says, then comes the end. Do you see that? Yes, I see that. Yes, I see a few nods heading. Heads nodding. I can tell I'm getting tired. Okay. There's a few heads that are nodding. Then comes the end. Now, the reason I want to point that out is the, the word end is tell us. And it's not just, tell us is not just a reference to an, a, a point in time, but tell us is also a reference to purpose. That there's a purpose, that God has a purpose. The, God, the Father, has a purpose in time uh, of what he wants to do. And, it, and it's this, in the end, sin will be no more, and God will reign supremely. Christ, as the Father's anointed king, will conquer permanently Every enemy of God, every contender for the Father's rule and authority and power. So this is what the Son is going to do. He's going to conquer all the enemies. The work of the cross, in other words, will be worked out into all of creation. Remember how the Great Commission starts? All authority has been given on earth. Heaven and earth has been given to me. Remember that? So that, we know that. So Jesus has all authority. He's been told all authority. Well, who's, give, who's given him that authority? The Father. All authority has been given to me. So make disciples. Why? Make disciples in order for me to then conquer, if you will, through the grace of God, through the love of God, conquer, conquer the world. So, so what is Jesus' final, final work with that authority? It's tempting to think verse 26 is the final event or final work where it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Seems like that might be the end. But that is not his final work with the authority that's given to him. Paul makes it very clear in verses 27 and 28 what will be the final work. What is it? What's the last thing that Jesus is going to do? Give the kingdom back to God the Father. He's going to be the one who's going to conquer. And once he does that, then he's going to give that. When all things are in subjection to him, Jesus, he's then going to take what has been subjected to him and he's going to give it back to the Father. 
He's equally God, all times, eternally, fully, simultaneously, as the other persons in the Godhead, and yet when it comes to the end, the Father is going to, or the Son is going to give all things back to the Father. Okay? So the Son understands his role and responsibility within the Godhead, and when his work is done, he will happily hand it over, the authority uh, as king. He'll, ha- he'll, he'll hand that authority over. That authority as being king, he's going to hand that over back to, the, back to the Father. So behold the Father, huh? The Father's unique role within the Trinity is that he is supreme among the Godhead. Okay, so that's number one. Any, any questions, any thoughts? Okay, so let's go to number two then. Uh, number two is the father as author. The father as, let me put wise author. There we go. The father as wise author of the story. Wise author of the story. So as we think of the story of God, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, he is the author. That is, all happens as he knew it would. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a kind of a peaceful um, reconciliation or an acceptance of one's reality as the character of a story uh, uh, to the prerogative of the author of that story. And so, we, you know, we're, we're okay with the fact that when we read a story that those people in the story, that what's happening to them to the story is whatever the author decides to have happen in the story because, you know, that's the prerogative of the author. I mean, that's what he gets to do. So I, w- I did read, some of you were, saw this up here, and so, of course, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, as who said that? Uh, uh, you know, we have Sacred City, you have the Bible and the Lord of the Rings on the same pulpit. So that's uh, kind of what's going on here. Uh, but I, it just happened to be reading. Uh, this is when uh, Sam and Frodo, they're on those back stairs, you know, the, the, the stairs. They're trying to get into Mordor. They can't go through the front gate. So they're going to go, be, go behind Gollum's, taking them up there. And of course, we know who is at the end there. It's Shelob, the, you know, the big old ugly thing. Uh, but before they get there, uh, Fran, uh, Sam and Frodo are having this discussion. And uh, he's, uh, Sam says, this, yes, that's so, said Sam. And we wouldn't be here at all if, we kn- if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures, I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a a bit dull, a kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have been just landed in them, usually their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect that they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we, wouldn't, they, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just, as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story, and not outside of it, call a good end. You know, coming home and finding all things right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bel- uh, old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always, just a minute, changing the page. Those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know. 
and you don't know you don't want them to. Then just a bit later, he goes. Uh, Sam says, "Don't the great tells uh, never end?" And Frodo says, "No, they never end as tells." He says, "Don't the great tells never end?" No, they don't. The greatest story will never end. And, and, and it's interesting because as they're reflecting on the fact that they're in a tell, they realize at this point in the book, in the story here, that they know they're part of a tell, and they know that they're actually a story in some greater tell, in some greater story. And like they, as they reflect on stories they've read, we don't want them to know the end. We just, we just want to be in there. We want to be part of the story. And he, he goes on and says... Um, the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later or sooner. And he says, I really don't want to know when that is. And it's a, it's a recognition that there's an author of a story, and the greater the story is, the longer that tale is going to go. And um, they, were, they were, in this point in the story, they, they recognized you know, whatever happens, happens, because we're not the author. There is somebody else writing this story about us. Um, so we, we, run, we understand this idea of the author having absolute control or sovereign over the story. And so the father is the wise author of, capital T, the story. And if you think about it, the word authority comes from those first six letters, author. The father has authority because he is the author, and the authority is, good, is as good as the wisdom of the author. And so good news for us, we have an all-wise author who is writing this, the story. So first of all, the father writes the story, and we can see that uh, when we go, to, uh, we go to Ephesians 1, 8 through 9. So letter B there, the father authors uh, or excuse me, writes the story, Ephesians 1, 8, and 9. So let's go to Ephesians 1, 8, and 9. I'm going to give you a break in just a minute here, but Ephesians 1, 8, and Oh, good, right, right in the middle of a sentence. Speaking of the Father, which he, the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom, there's our wisdom, and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So he has made known to us a mystery, and a mystery is that which is truth, is previously unknown, but has now been revealed. And of course, that is through the Holy Spirit, and we have the, the Word of God uh, to help us to know what that is. And the, why, the But it's the Father who's done this. The Father's the one who is, is writing this story. Now, um, Paul considers this in Ephesians 1, so look what he says in, let me, let me begin at verse 3 here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise and the glory of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him 
speaking of the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So now again, look at, look at how he speaks of it. First of all, I've just noted there, wisdom and insight, verse 8, or verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. This is how we know the Father writes the story. So you think of an author, before even a word is written down in a story, what is he doing? He's thinking already of the story. So many times authors, they haven't even put down anything on paper, but in their minds, they already know the main characters, they know where it's going to start, they know where it's going to end somehow, they kind of, kind of generally know where things are going. Well, that's exactly what we have described here, that in eternity past, this author knew things before we even knew it, right? Before it was written down, if you will, in terms of the word of God, he already knew who the characters were going to be. He knew where, how it was going to begin, how it was going to end, where it's headed, that kind of a thing. And because he is the author, the great author, he had all the details put out and put, put together uh, in, in eternity past in his mind. And he knew the main characters. And he knew the main characters. And the son, so we go to letter B there, the son is the main character. The son is the main character. The main character, Jesus Christ. He says, it's, it's the, Jesus Christ is the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. But then there are other, other characters, verse 11. So look at verse 11. Look at the other characters. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. So we who trust in Jesus Christ have been written in the story. So Jesus is the main character, and we get to be part of the character cast. So let us see, we are graciously written into the story. We are graciously written into the story. We are. The Father's unique role in the Trinity is that he is the wise author, and wisdom is the focus of this role, if you will, of, of the Father. Number three, goodness. Goodness is the focus of this next unique role. And so you see there, letter, uh, letter three, Roman numeral three, the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Uh, let me just read James 1.17 for you. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, consider the breadth and significance of this claim. Where does every single good gift originate from? The Father. Every good gift. If you have received a good gift, the original source is the Father. He's supreme, and this is what he likes to do. Thus, the Son is a good gift from the Father. For God so loved the world, you recognize that? For God so loved the world that he gave. That comes from a word gift. Gift. 
He gave his only begotten son. The son is a good gift. The spirit is a good gift from the father. Jesus promises the spirit will be given to them once he ascends. The spirit is a good gift. But now I want you to consider this. The giving of the son and the giving of the spirit is a measure of the assurance of all other good gifts. And so that's why I have us turn back to Romans 8. We turn to in the, in the introduction section, Romans 8, 31 and 32. The giving of the Son and the giving of the Spirit is a measure of the assurance of all the other good gifts that he's going to give to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Gave and give. Finally, but as important as the first three, the Father often provides and works through the Son and the Spirit. The Father often provides and works through the Son and the Spirit. The Father often provides and works through the Son and the Spirit to accomplish his work and fulfill his will. So now think about that. Though he has in the Trinitarian, Trinitarian order the place of highest authority, the place of highest honor, yet he chooses to do his work in many cases through the Son and the Spirit rather than through himself. It's as if the Father is saying to us, I want you to see my work accomplished through my son. Look at my son. Notice my son. Look at the marvelous obedience of my son that he would follow my will even though it would lead him to the worst place you could ever imagine, the cross. He said, look at him. Isn't that amazing? So here he is, the supreme one. He's saying, look elsewhere. Look at my son, for him I am well pleased. And so it goes back to the John 1, 14 uh, passage, which I said earlier, which is, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the son's glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the father chooses not to work in such a way that the son and the spirit are sidelined. In fact, the father refuses to be noticed in order that the central attention might be given to his son. But consider this. He extends this delegating work from the son and the spirit into his relationship with us. Does God need us to do his work? Does God need us to help others grow in Christ? Does God need us to proclaim the gospel so that others hear the good news and are saved? No. So why does he do it? He calls us into his service because he wants so very much for us to share with him a part in the glorious work of his story. That's why he does it. Isn't that crazy? That's just crazy. I would not do this. Bad plan. 
right? And I'm not wise. Yeah. He wants us to share in the joy of it. All right, applications. Here we go. Applications. To exercise authority with wisdom, goodness, and generosity, and not in self-serving ways. So here's an application. Number one, if we are going to exercise authority rightly, we, and, and we should because we're made in his image, we ought to exercise authority with wisdom. We ought to exercise authority with wisdom and goodness and generosity and not in self-serving ways. Okay? That's the first one. Number two, we are to exercise authority in such a way to seek the well-being of those under our charge. To seek the well-being of those under our charge. So if we're elders or mothers or employers, coaches, we are to inspire, aspire to and examine our leadership to better lead in a way that seeks the well-being of those under our charge. Number three, we are to generously delegate responsibilities to others. We are to generously delegate responsibilities to others. If you're not delegating responsibilities to others, you're not being godlike. We do this so that others can experience and participate in the fruit of the labor. Number four, good leadership will move the central attention onto those who have labored well. Good leadership will move the central attention onto those who have labored well. Jesus labored well. And the Father said, look at him. So we should be placing focus elsewhere, if we're in leadership, on those who have, who have labored well. And this requires a heart that genuinely wants to see others grow in their discipleship. Number five, learn from God the Father what true fatherhood looks like. Um, and it looks something like it insists, it insists respect and obedience, but it lavishes generous care and love and provision and protection on his children. So it should ins- insist on re- respect. And we see that in Psalm 2, but it also should lavish generous kind care on those in whom we are as fathers onto our children. 